Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. This is where we find ourselves in this journey through the first book of the Bible. When reading a narrative like Genesis, we should be thinking on three different levels of understanding and application. The first level and the primary level, this is God giving us our beginnings and also the beginning of the coming of Messiah in history. Um, God's plan for redemption introduced in Genesis 3 and then the unfolding story of the generations of the different patriarchs are building towards the development of Israel and the whole Old Testament is the story of how God brings Messiah, the seed of the woman who will come to crush the head of the serpent. That's the story of the Bible is Christ in, in the Old Testament builds up looking forward to him. In Genesis is a historic account of this starting to actually take place in history. That's the first level. That's how we understand even Genesis 33 and how it fits in. The second level is as God tells this story, these happenings that occurred over the time, there's also people and events that give us inklings about the Messiah, about what the Messiah would come and do. Individuals are most notable in this regard. You see him take Noah, for instance, and Noah is a type of Christ, picturing how Noah will bring salvation. The ark itself is a picture of Christ in the sense of God's judgments all around. If you're on the ark, you're safe. If you're in Jesus, you're safe. So there's pictures that are woven in to God's history of redemption. Think about Abraham when he goes to Moriah to sacrifice his son, his only son, a father sacrificing his son. And then as the story unfolds, a substitute is brought in so that Isaac doesn't have to die. A substitutionary atonement, we might say. So we get inklings of the Messiah throughout. Of course, think of the lives of the patriarchs. For as messed up as they are, there are these pictures from time to time of what the Messiah would be like. The greater version of these patriarchs is Jesus. Even Jacob meeting God and interacting with God, the way God brings him to himself and guides him throughout his life. If you think of Jacob's life, he has a son, Judah, who eventually, uh, Judah is the great forefather of the Messiah. Joseph's probably the most uh, typological figure in the whole book of Genesis, uh, looking like Christ in so many ways. So that's the second level of understanding as we read it. The third level is a level we'll focus on this morning a bit, since we've already set the stage, as I just mentioned. The third level deals with complex, struggling, messed up sinners who are also believers in Yahweh, God's placed his hand upon them, yet they're struggling all the time to follow God, to rely on him fully. And as you know by now, through Genesis to this point, the Bible does not candy coat any aspect of these people's lives. It's an ugly, full display, and aren't we glad our life isn't on the same kind of display? Perhaps we can relate best with Jacob of all the individuals so far. Talk about an enigmatic person, uh, shaky in all ways. But yet, when we come to Genesis 33, we're seeing a transformation in him. We know from Genesis 32 that God meets him at his moment of greatest need because he is scared literally to death to meet his brother Esau. It is gnawing at his whole life. The 20 years that have gone on between the last time he saw Esau and now about ready to meet him, it's been, the anxiety has been building up in him. Maybe you can relate with some individual who kind of gives you anxiety when you think about the person. Imagine it 
this case with Jacob, knowing full well Esau had every right to be mad, with, uh, mad about him. 20 years build up. Yet the Lord, in Genesis 31, calls Jacob to go back to Bethel. I want you to go back to the promised land. The time is now. There was purpose for why you were in Laban's house, but now you must go back. So Jacob knows. And God meets Jacob and tells him this. So Jacob starts to trek back only to get word that Esau is waiting for him. And oh, by the way, he has an army of men with him. And so Jacob sends off his family ahead and then starts to send gifts to appease Esau in the form of animals and livestock, and he sends them in droves, one at a time. So hopefully to, to calm Esau down a bit. Now Jacob is learning to trust God, but he also has this thing about him where he's trying to control his situation. And he's fearing man so much that God comes to him and wrestles with him. And this is meant to teach Jacob something we all have to learn. The person we're most scared of is nothing. It's God who we should fear. And once we're right with that God who we should fear, no person should give us that kind of anxiety, that kind of uh, difficulty in our spirits. All of this is being taught to Jacob as he goes. And now we come to the passage where the conf confrontation is going to happen. 20 years in the making. Here as I read God's holy word, Genesis chapter 33. <clears throat> and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, 
on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. From the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a hundred pieces for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, your word is indeed a treasure. As we consider this passage, please give us your aid by the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. Please help us to notice the details of this passage as well as its place in the overall narrative of your sending the Messiah. We can see that you had Jacob on a path of spiritual maturity, but we can also see how, by your providence, you were working in Esau too. O Lord, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. In Christ I pray, amen. <clears throat> As I mentioned, Jacob had really good reason to be fearful about Esau's approach. Jacob swindled Esau twice, for his birthright and then for the blessing later. And now it had been 20 years for Esau to grow in rage over what was done to him. But God had done and was doing an amazing work of sanctification in Jacob's life and some changing in Esau's demeanor, for sure. Jacob was starting to learn not to trust in his own schemes, his own powers of manipulation, his own intellect, his own ways of maneuvering people in situations, and rather to trust in God and God's will and God's word and his direction, to fear God more than man. But God was also doing some kind of softening in Esau. Esau was a very carnal man. We've seen, we've seen this from the beginning of his life, a person concerned with the here and the now, right, right in front of him. That's what he cared the most about. But God not, is not limited in his power to influence anyone, no matter their disposition with him. And Esau is no exception. God, for the sake of his covenant promises to Jacob, actually works in the heart and mind of Esau. So we have this much-anticipated meeting between Jacob and Esau. We have a picture of making things right on that third level of understanding this passage. Now, would I be too forward in challenging you, challenging myself afresh, guessing that many of us should be prompted by this meeting between Jacob and Esau to seek out some kind of a reunion and reconciliation with somebody in your life? Is it too forward to imagine that all of us could probably think of someone we're not right with right now and need to be right with? Several levels of meaning of this passage. I do want to focus on that application as we watch this story unfold a little more closely. In this story, we have a long-awaited reunion we have one party essentially admitting their wrongs and offering restitution. The actions of Jacob says out loud that he understands that Esau has just reason to be upset. And we have brothers reconciling. We have Jacob's safe return to the promised land as God had commanded him to go. Jacob was right in seeking this meeting. He knew he had to meet it head on. He couldn't go around to get up to where he was supposed to go. Eventually, he would have to meet Esau, who still lived in the land. Jacob was a recipient of divine grace over the whole of his life and especially all that had happened in Laban's house and most recently, meeting God. In a sense now, Jacob is taking up the mantle of representative of Yahweh. He has a new name, Israel. He's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. So he starts with Edom, his brother's family. 
What we see in this reunion of the brothers is a timeless lesson for all of us believers. As people who are called to be ambassadors of Christ, we say we represent him because we believe in Jesus. We are to do our best to live peaceably with others. Not to compromise his word and route, but yet we are called to be at peace with others. In fact, what you have here in this episode is the spirit of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Paul said, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So let's look at the reunion as it unfolds here in chapter 33. 20 years in the making, that's a long time for both parties to think about what this day would look like. What sets the meeting right is a humility that both parties exhibit. They come with humble hearts, they're humble before each other. We're to humble ourselves before others. If you look at how it begins, Jacob lifts his eyes, verse 1, and looks and sees Esau coming. He makes this move to divide the children out, even catch a little glimpse of Jacob's ongoing favoritism here in the order. Yes, there's a logical order, but he also, uh, we could see the dysfunction in the family, how he favors uh, Rachel and Joseph, last of all. But he's getting prepared. Verse 3, he then goes ahead of them. He was at the back, now he goes forward, already preparing Esau with all these gifts. And then he comes and he bows down on the ground seven times, up and down seven times, until he's right near his brother. His brother sees him coming in this fashion. It's a picture of humility. It's not groveling. It's following the custom of the day in that region to bow seven times before one who is respected. So he bows himself and he bows his heart. That physical action is actually showing an inward demeanor of humility. There's no reconciliation that's going to happen without a humble nature at first. But look at Esau. Esau ran up to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Esau returns with a similar humility, uh, realizing, yes, there's a lot that's happened between us, probably a lot to work through. But the most important thing is let's come back together. We're brothers. You know, several commentators note this picture, uh, the way that Jacob's received by Esau. It's kind of a shadow in some sense of the prodigal son returning. Uh, the son didn't think his father would ever take him. He's just going to beg to be a servant if he could. But instead, his father runs out to meet him. And this is a beautiful picture of God's work. And we see the humility in both parties now. Verse 5, Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He's so overwhelmed by what's happened in these last 20 years in Jacob's life. The children whom God has graciously given your servant, that's who these are. So Jacob even says something interesting for Jacob. He doesn't say, hey, this is the family I've built up. Isn't it great? No, he says, what you see here has been graciously given by God to me. Another show of his humility, which is so different from the Jacob we learned of earlier on. Jacob humbly notes God's provision of his family, taking no credit for this. Verse 6, then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. So now the whole household follows the leadership of the head of the household, showing this humility. It's a bit of a lesson for us. You know, we as parents, as we show humility in relationships, our children learn that, and they show humility in relationships too. And it causes a lot less problems before they need to have reconciliation when our demeanor's like this. Jacob, not the old Jacob, at least not at this moment, he's been humbled over the years, he's met God, he's even wrestled with God. 
he was left with a permanent limp to constantly remind him of God being the one he should fear. He should follow what God says in all instances. Even now, scared of Esau as he was, and rightfully so, his issue was with trusting and fearing God, not being scared of Esau, and this humbles him. This is the most humble version of Jacob we've seen for sure. A new name and a new identity. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In a way, from the time Jacob meets God in that wrestling match in the chapter prior, all the way through to finally meeting Esau, it's like one big episode of God's growing Jacob in trust and humility. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator, said, true to the biblical pattern, Jacob's vision was no escape from reality. His language shows that he saw the two encounters, the encounter with his Lord, the angel of the Lord, wrestling with the Lord, and the encounter now with his brother as two levels of a single event that God was working in his life. Jacob finally acts humbly instead of opportunistically and with manipulation for selfish gain. Sure, he still shows a little of that Jacob savvy with, hey, I'm going to send some gifts his way. But when you think about it, that's the least he could have done in paying back Esau. He's penitent now in a humble sense. Being so generous shows that he believes in God's provision now. Now, notice what doesn't happen when they meet. And this is another bit of counsel for us. When they meet after 20 years, Esau does not at that moment bring up the past. Esau could have easily said, what do you have to say for yourself, you conniving jerk of a brother? You liar, you deceiver. Jacob could have said, your threats of murder forced me into exile for some 20 years. Remember, Esau vowed, I'm going to kill this guy. I mean, Jacob was not irrational expecting that from Esau. Sometimes issues of the past have to be dealt with, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You don't just ignore them. But at some point, we have to move on from the past. It's a choice at that moment. And here it is, Esau, who actually acts the most nobly in this situation. He brings relief and restoration to the relationship because he has moved on from the past. I don't know if you've seen this have effect in your own lives, but my family growing up on my father's side was completely dysfunctional in many ways. I didn't know until after, because it's all I knew. But my dad had nine siblings, and I have, I have literally dozens of cousins, but I only ever knew a few of them, and they all lived in the same area that I grew up in. And I could never understand until later years, until someone explained to me something that had happened a long time before, that had disjointed our family to the point where all of us cousins who didn't know what happened with our parents back when they were kids, we didn't know why it was that we were so disjointed. We got back together as adults more, but we missed out on our whole childhood together as cousins, living in the same region even. The story goes, back before war, World War II, I know, I'm going back a ways, my father and their siblings, they were living in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And my grandfather worked in the coal mines leading up to the Second World War. Well, those jobs were starting to wane a bit as some different mines closed down. And so there was word that the steel mills up in Buffalo and Pittsburgh and some of the, the old Rust Belt cities, Cleveland, uh, they were hiring like crazy. So two of the older brothers out of the nine siblings, who are quite a bit older than my dad, my dad was about 10 at this time, some of them were near 20. They took what money they had in an old car that barely made it across town, let alone 200 miles north, and they gave it to the two older brothers, and they were to go north to check out the jobs in Buffalo. 
So they did this. They're supposed to be back within a couple weeks. Two months go by, and they're not back. Finally, they come back. And it had been alleged that money had been taken out of the family safe when those two brothers left. And the charge was that they went up and lived the good life for two months while they're supposed to be scouting for the family. They came back eventually, and eventually the whole family moved up to Buffalo, but things were never right between the siblings again because the younger siblings were sure that the older siblings had done something uh, that they should not have done and stole from the family in the process, a family that was below poverty level. This event made the brothers, as they went off from the household, hardly relate with each other. And when their parents died, they almost didn't talk at all, some of, the, some of the younger ones with the older ones. My dad was the third youngest. He didn't know as many of the details, but one of the older aunts would tell him, you should be mad at those two brothers for what they did. And this was woven into the fabric of the family the whole time I grew up. And like I said, I only met some of the cousins closely, and others didn't know at all till my adult years. It's really amazing to see how this kind of unsettled offense affected things. In fact, when I had just been married a couple years, we went back to a family gathering where a couple of the brothers, one of the brothers who was one of the supposed perpetrators, was at this dinner. And I was just sitting there. I was in my early 20s. Sherry, had just, we'd just been married two years. She didn't even know the whole family. I tried to explain some of the dynamics. And sometime in the middle of the dinner, it gets quiet, and my Uncle Steve, one of the guys who was supposedly committed this, this uh, crime against the family, he looks at me, he goes, I know you're looking at me and thinking I did it. Oh, I didn't. That's all made up. And I couldn't, it was like everyone was quiet. I hadn't been around in a while, and he just wanted to let me know that the stories I had heard growing up, that, and that was 1993. The offenses happened in 1941. That may sound ridiculous to you, but maybe you've got something that's not settled. And if you keep letting it go on like this, it could have effects you may not imagine for the future. There has to be a time where we deal with issues that are unsettled and we reconcile them. We see that happen here with Jacob, and we see it happen with Esau at just the right, just the right level, as God would call these two men in this, sitting, this setting so that Jacob could peaceably move back in to the promised land. Doesn't mean that Jacob ignored how he wronged Esau. He does everything in his power to provide restitution. And that's the next point I'd like us to see in the passage. Yes, they bury the hatchet, so to speak, about the past, but there's an activity here on the part of Jacob that acknowledges that there's things he needs to do to make up for what was done. He writes a wrong when it's possible. Again, back to Romans 12, I mentioned it earlier. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Esau was a carnal, temporal man. They were enjoying a reconciliation for the moment. Now, restarting their relationship and going on together from there, that wasn't in the, in, in the providential cards. But I want you to notice Esau's response to the gift of all those hundreds of animals that he received. Esau said in verse 8, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. I wanted to give this to you to set things right. Uh, think about what did Jacob steal from Esau? The birthright and the blessing. Both things for a carnal person who doesn't care about the spiritual realities behind it. Like he, he despised his birthright. That's the big sin of Esau. He despised what came in covenant promises to him. But on the first, or on the blessing, so much about his inheritance and the stuff he would have had was lost. 
And so now Jacob is, in a sense, making restitution. I'm going to give to you this earthly stuff, this temporal stuff, that you would have had had I not swindled you like I did. That, that's silently what's going on. He's making up where he can some of the wrongs that he had committed. Esau said, verse 9, I've got enough. Keep it for yourself. But Jacob insists because he wants to set it right as best as he can. Like it says, live peaceably with all, so far as it depends on you. Do your best to leave nothing hanging in debt in this respect. Jacob said, please, if I found favor in your sight, accept my present from my hand. So when they part from there, Esau can never look back and say that Jacob didn't make things right to the best of his ability. Now, I know there's some things you can't go back and make right or someone can't make right uh, for you, but we try the best we can when the opportunity arises. And notice the language that Jacob uses so you don't think I'm stretching this idea that he's paying back for what he stole. Look at verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. He's using the word blessing, the very thing that was stolen from Esau, and I want to give to you. We could see how heavy Jacob's conscience is by the size of the gift and the word blessing used. Esau tries to turn it down. Now, the old Jacob might have said, hey, he really doesn't want it, and pull it back. Okay, but no, it's not about him and Esau. It's about him and God and doing what's right. There are times you will do things that are right that God calls you to do and people won't acknowledge we still do it because God's called us to do it. Jacob's very generous in his restitution, and he even says the reason. It's because God has been so gracious to him that he could show this kind of, this kind of generosity towards his brother Esau. He doesn't skimp. He doesn't take no for an answer. In his gratefulness to God, he pours out these blessings, these physical blessings upon Esau. Through Jacob's 20 years of contemplation of Esau's rightful anger, he was forced to explore his relationship with God and with his calling in life, God calling him back to Bethel. Esau's anger was always in Jacob's mind. It plagued the whole of his life. He probably never made a decision without thinking of having to meet Esau and deal with Esau. Jacob was generous in his gift to Esau because he was overjoyed by the grace that God had shown to him in the situation. The restitution he was making wasn't in order to get right with God. God had made him right, and so now he's going to act this way towards others. It really reminds me of the story of Zacchaeus that we love so much, this wee little man, Zacchaeus, getting up in the tree. But listen to how Zacchaeus responds to the grace of God in his life, and I think this relates to what we see happening here. In Luke 19, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. He was small. He ran ahead, climbed into the tree. Jesus was about to pass. When Jesus came to the place, he said, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay with you today. So Zacchaeus, hurry down. Zacchaeus was looking for Christ's acceptance, and Christ accepted him. Come, I'm going to stay in your house. So that's the order of things for Zacchaeus, a, a shrewd man, a man who made his living extorting money from other people, built up a small fortune this way. People saw this and said, hey, look at this, Jesus, he's going in to be in the house of, with a sinner. But Zacchaeus did not care what anyone thought because he had been forgiven by Christ. He had been received by Christ. So then what does Zacchaeus say? 
Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see, he wants to make restitution as the response to God's grace. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. He is the son also of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus did not make restitution to be saved. He made restitution because he was saved. Jacob was making restitution because he had met with God, been called by God. He was right with God now, and he wanted to do what was right. This is so different from the Jacob of old, who would have definitely, as soon as Esau said, you know, I don't need this, oh, never mind. But that had nothing to do with the new Jacob. Reunion, restitution, reconciliation. But there's still one more matter that has to happen here to turn into the next chapter. He has to return to Bethel. That's where God has called him to go. So he has to separate himself from Esau because Esau is a pretty strong man, strong personality and driven. He wants Jacob to come with him. Let's establish our friendship and relationship again, but that's not the call of God for Jacob. Yes, to do what he did is, but he's not to follow Esau. Esau is not a man of God. So yes, we should seek reconciliation and, rest, and restitution should be provided where we can make rights wrong or wrongs right, but what you have here is a temptation now to go with Esau, and that would be a compromise to what God called him to do. On the positive, Jacob resists Esau's temptation to go. Now, I'll say ahead, though, nothing simple with Jacob. Yes, he was right to separate from Esau, but no, he was wrong for where he went. He did not go all the way to Bethel like he was supposed to, and you'll see soon how much that cost his family. But look at how he resists what Esau calls him to do. Verse 12, Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Hey, let's, let's pick it up together, brother. But Jacob says, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. It's not, it's not that he's doing the old Jacob so much, as he's trying to politely simply say, colloquially, I'm going to go my way. Just, just let me go my way, and you go your way. He's trying to break that down carefully. Esau said, oh, let me leave some people with you. We, we could take care of that. Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. Now, it's true, it would have been hard to drive the flocks, but yes, Esau could have accommodated, but what's coming out in this discussion is, without trying to go back to where it was and undo what was just reconciled, Jacob's saying, no, this isn't what I'm going to do. I have to do something else. He doesn't explain it to Esau. Explain what? Well, back in chapter 28, of Genesis. God says to Jacob, I am with you and it will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. He knows that God wants him to go God's way, not Esau's way. In Genesis 31, God says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Go back to Bethel. That's what your mission is. So they have this warm reunion, yet there's a temptation to be compromised now, to keep Esau friendly with him. He might have intended to visit Seir sometime, but it wasn't going to be that day. Kidner, who I referred to earlier, said, the very warmth of the welcome that they had together brought a new danger of false partnership and consequent diversion. You follow what he's saying. It's good that they reconciled to be peaceable with all people as much as possible, but don't follow an unbeliever into their life in that reconciliation. Jacob knows his covenantal role. Verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth, 
and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So he left and went towards Bethel. Here's the problem. Again, nothing simple with Jacob. He's 20 miles short of Bethel where he stops. That's a huge problem. He doesn't follow God all the way like he should. Yes, he's separated from Esau. Yes, he's back to the promised land. But he hasn't done ultimately what God has called him to. Verse 18 says, and the wording is careful, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. That's not a positive delineation. That's to say Jacob felt safe personally and he stopped there. He didn't keep going to where he should go. Now, the reasons for why he didn't, we're not sure. It could be he just figured he owned all the stuff he had. He'd get back to Bethel. Isaac, his father, and the rest of the people there would be established. How would he buy into it? Whereas he found an opportunity at Shechem, thought, hey, it's close enough. He camped before the city. Then he buys land in the city. Again, all of this is going to prove very problematic for the rest of the family's development in life. But he names the place, the altar there, in his attempt to try to give praise to God for all that God had brought him through. El Elohe Israel, the mighty God is the God of Israel. Jacob is noting God's fulfillment of the vow to bring him back to the land out of the overbearing hand, out from under the overbearing hand of Laban. He resists coming under Esau's thumb, resists going to Esau's home and culture, but he doesn't follow through with the actions to go to Bethel. He does avoid a major compromise, and we recognize this and appreciate that. When we're reconciling, especially if we're reconciling with people in our family or in our workplace or in our past who are not believers, we want to be peaceable and be, do our best to keep that level of peace without compromising. That's the picture we have in front of us. So we come to the end of Jacob's recorded dealings with Esau. We'll not see Esau again until their father's funeral. Scripture doesn't record any further interactions between these men, even though they don't live that far apart relatively after this. This account of their reconciliation provides a reminder to us about living peaceably with others, especially as people who are recipients of God's grace. So whatever the situation is that's come to your mind and heart, ask God to help you find a way to work that reconciliation out with the person or the people you're thinking of at this time. Remember, Paul said, by inspiration of the Spirit, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In the sight of all, people watching. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word has a dynamic way of speaking to our immediate situations. We see the different levels of this passage in the bigger picture in redemption history, uh, the way these patriarchs, and the way you've worked their lives uh, to give us inklings of the Messiah, the greater one of all of these. Each of us, though, can find in the personal interactions of these sinners who you're working on, we can find application of truth to what we have read for our own lives. Lord, where there may be broken relationships among us, or connected to us, please give us the grace of your Holy Spirit to seek out reconciliation as much as it lies within our power. Please give us a spirit of humility as we approach others uh, with whom we need reconciliation and restoration. 
Help us, O Lord, to lead the way of forgiving others as we have been forgiven in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.